Well, let's take our Bibles. Let's turn again to Ephesians chapter 4. It's been so good to see so many new people, even just today, at this service especially, not counting the last one or what's to come. And so you may see folks around you taking their Bible and their journal. If you'd like one of those, they're available at Connect Center, just outside these doors and across the gym, $5. It's a study guide keeping us kind of on track and walking, us, walking with us through the rest of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, we're still in the beginning verses of this chapter. If you recall last week, we felt the pull of Paul's urging uh, to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In other words, to live a life of equal weight. No discrepancy or hypocrisy, but one of consistency. Our conduct and our calling matching, congruent. I find it quite intriguing that the very next thing that Paul gets to is the arena in which that is the most difficult. Where is it most difficult to walk with congruency and without discrepancy? And the answer in a word is in our relationships. I mean, truly, relationships are the places that we most often get out of balance, where we experience inconsistency, discrepancy. For instance, my family knows better than anyone how inconsistent I actually am. The five that... Uh, we're with us for those years of raising kids. We have four kids and Julie. So those five, they just know me, the good, the bad, the ugly. And they would go on the list, probably talk about more. They've seen me on my best days and my worst days. I mean, the relationships, they're the hardest places to really try to maintain that kind of consistency. If I were to um, extrapolate this out, I would say to you that our leadership here knows that about me. See, a lot of you really don't know me. I know your name, you know mine, we talk, we speak. But the truth is, probably our elders, our staff, our deacons, they've seen me on my brightest days and they've seen me on my darkest. They've been in the meetings where, ah, it didn't go great. They've had to rescue me from situations and say, I think you should go back and redo that. I mean, they just know me because we're around each other a lot. And it's in relationships that are deep that you really discover, wow, that, there's some inconsistency here. There's some discrepancy. I mean, you've got it and I've got it. And that's why I'm so thankful that God knows this and has given us instructions in verses two and three of Ephesians four about how to actually work towards consistency in our relationships, how to walk worthily with those around us in congruency. This is what he tackles next and I think as we unpack verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4, you're going to see this simple truth emerge. It's not hard today. It's just right in front of our face. It's this right here. That walking worthily, or as we defined last week, equal weight living, it demands relational sensitivity aimed at spiritual unity. It's that last phrase that's really going to encapsulate verses two and three of Ephesians four. So together with me, would you understand and say this, that walking worthily or equal weight living demands what? Say it, church. 
relational sensitivity aimed at spiritual unity. Let's see this unfold and emerge from our text. I'll read verses one through three. We'll focus in in a moment then through our lab at just verses two and three. But here's the entire context of the first three verses, the what, the how, and the why. Paul would write this, Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's the what, to walk worthily. Here's how, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and here's why, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So in your Bible, and your notes, and your journal, make sure you kind of understand the what, the how, and the why. And let me just kind of unpack now for you through our lab a bit more about the how and the why. I want to do this collectively, first of all, looking at both verses, and then I'm going to go back and just kind of individually give you some insight into the different words. I believe these two verses really showcase five traits. If you read about this from other authors, they may say there are six or seven. Some may say there's three uh, or four. I'm content with five, and I'll show you why. You can say, oh, I see that. That's good reasoning. I agree. Or you can say, I disagree either way. Man, we're going to be in great fellowship with each other. This is not an eternal security issue. Amen, church? But I want to show you how I'm breaking the passage down, give you my reasoning, and see if you can board that train with me. Collectively, I really see um, five traits, and the first two point to things that should be true about us, or we could say we see ourselves in the right light, and that is humility and gentleness, how we should view ourselves, how we should conduct ourselves. And then the next two, I think, are patience, and the ESV says bearing with. It's one word. It's the word forbearance. Um, I think those are traits that we then exhibit to others. So I see the first two as kind of an internal set of traits or perspectives. The second really are uh, how we treat others, more external. And then I think the fifth one is that when those are in place and visible, they evidence an eagerness that should be about us. Now you may say, Todd, what about love and what about unity and what about peace? I really see those as, I would call them feeders. I think they're sources. For instance, I think love from God spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit is the source for our ability to love others in a humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing manner. So we display these four traits. We have these four traits. We pursue these four traits in love. I think unity and peace they are things that are created by the Trinity, and I'll get more to this later, but they're things by the Trinity that we actually already have. So we don't have to create those. We're told in this passage to simply keep them. So they're feeding our eagerness. They're feeding our actions. That's why I, I just kind of land on this. There's really five types of traits that should be visible in the person who's seeking to walk in a manner worthy. Just to make sure you get them, it's humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and eagerness. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this for you in a way that would give you more of my reasoning. And I hesitate at this illustration because it doesn't really resonate with the tone of the text. In preaching, what you want to do is your tone in preaching 
should resemble the tone of the text. That's kind of what, that's how we teach our preachers to preach. And that's generally the, the accepted models. You don't want to preach in a, in, a, in a way that's different than the tone of the text. So it's, if it's very shepherd-like and compassionate, then you want to have a compassionate kind of tone that week. If it's really kind of someone pressing in hard, you want to kind of press in hard. And this tone here is not a courtroom type of tone. It's not. This is somewhat shepherdly. It is exhortive, but you can, you can see the, the words used here. There's no word like ambition or drive. These are all very relational, uh, kind of uh, sensitive words, how we should be. And yet, in my mind, I, I'm picturing a courtroom. So, so give me some room with this illustration. In that these four traits, two of them internal, two of them external, when they are evidenced, the verdict is in, you care about unity. See, that's what's happening here. So if I'm, I'm, I'm working with someone, we're talking together and we have a disagreement, but we're striving together to find some resolution, to get to a place of, of unity, even in the middle of our disagreement perhaps. When there's uh, gentleness and patience when there's a forbearance and humility, that person senses, wow, Todd values unity. Or I'm sensing that person values unity. In other words, the evidence stacks up and I see what they truly prioritize. It's the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so I'm saying, man, you're eager to make this right. We're emailing, we're calling. Well, you want to make this right? I sure do. I'm eager, Todd, that I understand something. You value unity. And by the way, when there's a lack of eagerness, when there's a lack of these traits, you know what I also surmise? You know what other kind of verdict is in? You must not care about unity that much. So that illustration just this week as I was pondering these verses, it just kind of helped crystallize in my mind. Oh, I see how these work together. There's really four or five traits. Four of them are more like evidence. The fifth one's a verdict. Like, yeah, I can see you're eager. You care about unity. So that's kind of how I see these two verses. Let me go, if I can, for a moment to help you understand the words individually and see if we can provide some descriptions that will just help God's word to just unfold for us in a more practical, even uh, impacting way. Humility here is just the word uh, for lowliness. You might want to write that in your notes, lowliness. Gentleness is the word for meekness. You could also use the word submissive for the word gentleness. Here's a factual note for you in regards to the word humility. It was never used in a positive way historically until the time of Christ. And much of my reading about this word the last several days, even in previous years, it's become clear that this was always the word used to describe someone in a negative way because the culture looked at him as someone who's taking a, an escalator down. Like, you're taking a lower position? You're accepting a submissive role? Like, man, that's not how you climb the ladder. That's not how you get ahead. So it was always a derogatory term until the time of Christ. And the early church apostles, when suddenly humility is used as a way to describe the true leader in God's family. So elders, deacons, small group leaders, members, we don't lead like CEOs and bosses. We're not trying to climb some spiritual church ladder. We're lead, we lead as shepherds, as servants. We're foot washers. 
And suddenly when Christ comes on the scene, teaches his disciples and the church starts in Acts 2, humility is now seen as the word, the positive word, the positive label that describes the followers of Christ. Like they're humble people. Isn't that beautiful? How Christ has even changed the way words are used. Incidentally, these two words, humility and gentleness, they're used of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty nine, in which it said of Christ, he said in describing himself, I am meek and lowly. So when, when your pastor calls on you to consider yourself in the right light and to see yourself properly as one who is meek and lowly, he's just asking you to be like Jesus. Amen, church? We're not making up some list of traits that we're trying to Velcro to you. We're just saying, hey, here's what Jesus said about himself and it's asked of us to. Patience and forbearance are interesting words. I'll say more about patience on the uh, Extra Point podcast this Tuesday. Please listen in because it's not the usual word for patience, which is to remain under a trial. Uh, the word's idea of you know, staying put under something. This is the word really that describes having a, a long fuse. I won't go into it here because I'll do it on Tuesday except to say this. It's a compound word. The first part of the compound word is the word macro as opposed to micro. And so when you think about macro, you think about something like from a larger view, a longer view, something big, not just necessarily you know, tiny. And he's saying here, you should have a, a big, wide, long fuse. The word technically just means that you're not going to avenge a wrong that was done to you. You're not going to be quick to retaliate. And I just think if I can just be very pastorally plain with you, it just means you're, you're not quick-tempered, but you're long-fused. It's going to take a long time for you to draw the line, get angry. I'm not saying that you should get angry, but there is a righteous anger in the Bible. There is a place where our patience runs out. By the way, you know God's patience eventually runs out. So he's saying, though, that should be a, a long type of window or a, a large runway. Patient. I just wrote the word long in my notes, kind of understanding more about what the word means. Listen to Tuesday, I'll say more about it there. And then the idea of forbearance. Um, this is one word, of course, in the original languages. I'm just going to be, again, very pastorally plain with you. Here's what the word actually means. It means to put up with. <laughs> and can we just chuckle? That sometimes in families and in the church, you get through something because you put up with it. It means to tolerate. I don't think it means you tolerate sin. or I don't think that's the point of, Paul's, uh, of his text here. He's saying that in relationships, when you're, you're seeking to walk worthily, you know, your conduct and your calling are to match. There are just moments when personalities and preferences and differences just, they're hard to kind of see through. And the only way through it is you just put up with some things. And every wife here is giggling right now. She's nudging her husband like, yeah, you know, I know what you're talking about. And probably every husband is too. Every child, every parent, every person here knows the, the real gist of this word. You bear with called forbearance. Now, about these two words, they are said of God in Romans 2.4. Think about that. That in Romans 2.4, God is said to be patient and forbearing. Jesus is said to be humble and gentle. So guess what? Every 
part of the Father and the Son is leaning into you right now and calling for you to be relationally sensitive. Paul said in Ephesians 4, we'll get to later, to be kind and tender-hearted. Again, these types of words that speak to our posture towards others and the way we view ourselves. Again, this is all sourced by God's love. We see how he loves us and then we love others in a humble, gentle, patient way. After all, this is how God the Father and God the Son have loved us. This is how they've lived. Now, you may see this, and, and I, I hope that what you're seeing is the, the idea of relational sensitivity coming through from our take-home truth. And you may hear the words relational sensitivity and you think, well, Todd, that, that sounds a little soft. Like maybe you want you know, everybody to be kind of like a pansy or just a little bit you know, kind of on the sissy side maybe. Okay, don't hear soft when I say sensitive. Hear secure. Are you listening to me? I am calling for you to have a relational sensitivity, but I'm not asking you to be soft. I'm asking you to be secure so that you relate in an unrattled fashion. Because when we relate to each other, especially in moments of where there's differences and they're emerging or preferences are, are, are clear that they're not the same. And we're thinking, okay, how can we continue to walk consistently personally as well as corporately? How do we manage this no discrepancy place when we're obviously gonna have some differences? Often we relate in a rattled fashion. Our temperature rises and soars quickly. We become defensive and we're not really humble or gentle or patient or forbearing, are we? So I'm gonna maintain that these words, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just stick with these words that I've, I've, I asked several people this week, is this, a, is this a good approach? And they said, if you give us some explanation, we're good with it. And I wanna make sure there's some explanation here. I think relational sensitivity is a very good word to describe these four traits. And I'm not asking you to be soft, I'm asking you to be secure in who you are in Christ and how God has made you and then to approach relationships in a very unrattled way. So you can be humble and gentle and patient and forbearing. Now here's why this is important. Because all of you, all of us have sensitivities. Now I suspect there's a guy in this room that's saying, I don't, I'm tough. That's probably happening in someone's mind right now. And they're just dead wrong. There's no man or woman in this room that doesn't have at least one or two sensitivities. R.C. Sproul called these uh, landmines in his book on Ephesians. He says, we all have some landmines, one or two or more, and they're just below the skin. And you touch them, and it's shrapnel time. It'll go off. Now, hopefully, you don't have a lot more than one or two, right? But everyone's probably got one or two. Sometimes we have these landmines just below the skin, because of things that we've done sinfully or stupidly and they've caused havoc in our life. They've left us scarred or memories and so we have to deal with that. Sometimes it's from things done to us of which we had no control. It's very tragic. And so you grow up into adulthood and you manage some trauma from your childhood and it's just, it's caused you to be sensitive. And this is just real life. It's people made in God's image but who have a, a brokenness about this image. 
It's, it's from sin, either their own or other sin. And so it's left us. Watch this, church. It's left every single one of us with at least one or two or more sensitivities. I'll even use this word. Areas of insecurity. I've got them. Now, like I said at the beginning, my family could tell you what those are. And they'll tell you that if they touch those areas, it's usually um, a quick conversation. It used to be a loud conversation. God has, over the last 20 years, really changed a deep part of my character. And that is my quick-temperedness. And I want to give glory to God for the way he's changed me. I'm not the guy, the husband, or the dad I was 20 years ago. I'm just not. And it's because of God's grace and God's power to turn me from a short-tempered, quick-tempered person to one hopefully trying to interact with our church and my family with humbleness and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Because I know they're doing that for me. So I'm aware of their landmines. They're aware of mine. And so we treat each other in this fashion. We see ourselves in the right light and we treat others in the right way. And I would exhort you, all men and women in this room, all men and women watching, to not deny the fact that you have some sensitivities. You have some landmines just below your skin that if someone presses them, you want to go from zero to 60 in 1.5 seconds. You've got them. This is why Paul is asking for us to have all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. In fact, just this past week, I think it was Wednesday, I was speaking with one of our staff members. And the conversation just didn't go that great. It didn't turn sinful, but I think I and they could sense some tension. I think I pushed their buttons unintentionally. I touched a landmine. I know that they touched one of my landmines. And so we, we ended the conversation gracefully, but I think they went home, and I know I went home processing, okay, I, I need to revisit that somehow. And I was under the weight of this text. I was ready to preach on Tuesday. I'm like, man, I wanna to get to the church quick, you know, and just lay this out. So I'm, I'm thinking this through, digesting it, thinking how it worked, you know, all, it's authority on my life. And then I had this conversation. I'm home Wednesday night thinking, uh, or I think maybe it's Tuesday, I'm not sure. But I was thinking, uh, I've I, I got to obey this. Like, I'm not exempt from this. So the next day I just went in and I said, hey, could we rechat about that? And you know what? We both just admitted there were probably a couple moments when we got too close to some landmines. And man, it was, it was a beautiful moment of just making sure that there wasn't any unnecessary disunity. Uh, and it was sweet to see both of us working hard at patience and forbearance, trying to be meek and lowly, when probably for both of us, that wasn't our natural reaction. But thank God for his spirit who gives us supernatural reactions. Amen, church? To actually act this way so that, watch this, we're walking worthily. We're, we're seeking consistency. We're not living in a discrepancy. As I've shared some of that, I suspect you've thought of your different sensitivities. Some of you may have doctrinal sensitivities. I have at least one of those. There's a certain doctrine that I'm extremely sensitive about. I love it. Uh, I embrace it. I thank God for it. And when I feel it gets challenged, I, I feel like the Martin Luther moment's coming. It's Reformation time all over again. <laughs> I have to fight the urge to realize you're not coming at me. I know that. 
and that there is room in this doctrine for maybe different ways of seeing it, but that's hard for me to do. I'll be honest with you. I have a doctrinal sensitivity. You could even say perhaps maybe insecurity. I feel very secure in it, but perhaps I'm a little defensive about it at times. Um, you may have some of those. You may have practical, or we can call them methodological sensitivities, like the time of service starts. Uh, you may uh, even, maybe about uh, where you sit, how things are arranged, decor, lights, volume. You may have things like that. Someone beside you actually thinks totally different. And you're in the same church. So I'm just saying that there are preferences and sensitivities, and there's often good reasons for those, by the way. Maybe you have uh, personal or even relational sensitivities. Again, this could be from things that happened to you earlier or things that you've done to yourself. Could be just a background of sin or maybe it's just different things. And so you have like um, uh, certain things that kind of tip you off that, oh, it's not gonna be a good moment here. Here's what I wanna say to you. Regardless of what your sensitivity or landmine is, watch this. It's real. I didn't say it was right. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just simply saying to every single person in this room, many of you members of this church, there are real sensitivities among the body. And we can't be the kind of people that are going around trying to find the landmine so we can see how much shrapnel comes out. Now, I can say this today because I don't think that's the posture of this church. I, I think for 18 years, God has been so gracious in giving us, generally speaking, a very strong posture of unity. You guys follow your elders in an incredible, humble fashion. I mean that. You have good conversations with us. We're open book to you, our finance team, our deacons, our leadership, our staff. We don't try to hide anything, and, and you accept that. You talk to us. We, we give answers, and when they're not what you like, you still have a humble spirit towards them when you are reasoning. Like, okay, I might not see it perfectly, but I accept that. I'll follow that. So I think overall, it's been a, it's been a very encouraging journey here. But can I encourage you with this? That has to continue as well because you can easily lose what God gives and his, by his grace, which is what Paul's point is here. We must be eager to maintain this unity. So let me just encourage you. Let's not be poking at people with inappropriate humor or sarcasm that's biting or digs. If you know where someone's landmines are, Man, work to deactivate them, not cause them to go off. <laughs> if you know where their sensitivities or their insecurities lie, man, be cognizant of that and be humble and gentle, patient and forbearing. This is the call of Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. Because when that is our posture, we begin to be... Um, we begin to see that the, the evidence is mounting, that they, they really care about unity. Like they really want to walk consistently. They don't want discrepancy. They don't want to say, we'll be known by our love, but we're always arguing about stuff. That's not what we're after. We're after a consistency, a congruency, a unity between what God says about us and how we live. And that occurs in these relationships when we obey two and three. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance in love. And when that's in play, watch this. What's shown or displayed back to our lab here is an eagerness. See the word eager there? 
It just simply means to take pains. I'm gonna write this down. Some of your translations will say endeavoring. I think it's appropriate to to say this is really a a word that indicates you're gonna go to great measures, be very conscientious to fulfill your obligation. So the obligation here, watch this, is to maintain something that's been given to you. See the word maintain there? Which means you're not creating it, you're just keeping it. And what are you keeping? The verse says you're keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? I think most of us get the unity of the spirit. I think it is referencing the spirit, the the unity that comes from the spirit. He is one with God, yes, but he's also made us one with each other. I think the phrase we struggle with is this idea of the bond of peace. Like what is Paul referencing there? And I would refer your attention to Ephesians 2 because here's what I think Paul is referencing. I think Paul in his mind is thinking of the cross. You say, Todd, that seemed like a jump. I don't see the word in there. How do you get there? I'm glad you asked. Here's how I got there. Jump back to chapter two and what did Paul say was intentionally killed at the cross? Hostility between Jew and Gentile. And then he says, he brought peace. The bond of peace that we already have is the work of Christ on the cross unifying us together. So you're not creating unity and you're not creating peace. You're actually trying to keep them both. You have them. Christ has purchased peace and unity. The Spirit has applied peace and unity. And now it's the church's role and job to keep it. And by the way, we have the easiest job. You didn't purchase it and you're not applying it. The spirit and the son have done the hard work. Amen, church? And he's asking us, as you relate to each other in this endeavor to walk in a consistent manner, that there are four traits that will help that and breathe on that and give wings to that, that will show evidence that you really value unity. And it's humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And when those are displayed, it's clear evidence. Man, you're so eager to really keep what the son purchased and the spirit has applied. That's a body I can live in. When I say body, I mean church body. Like that's a church family I would gladly join in, wouldn't you? A set of people eager to keep what the son purchased and the spirit has applied. And so our lifestyles, our lifestyles of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, Todd, I, I, uh, I'm not even sure I, I can keep the peace. Every relationship I have is difficult. Conflict follows me everywhere. Maybe you don't know the prince of peace. Maybe a peace is foreign to you because you're always fighting for your way. As James 4 says, you're just living for your own lust. So you're manipulative, leveraging, and perhaps you don't see it quite clearly, but your entire life has just lived with a hook in it. Everything you do is just to make sure you get something for yourself or your way. You can't imagine being humble and lowly like Jesus or patient and forbearing like God. And I just want to encourage you. I want to invite you. I want to implore you. 
Trust Jesus because there's no way you can turn over a new leaf just by hearing a motivational talk. You need the power of the gospel to invade your life and change your nature. And that's what salvation does. The gospel changes people from the inside out. If you're wondering, Todd, I want to live like this. I want to be a peaceful person. The key is the gospel. And if you've never trusted Jesus, we do this morning. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ, ask him for the forgiveness for your sins and God will do exactly that. He'll save you, he'll change you from the inside out. He'll cause you to be this kind of person who can keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, this isn't a squishy kind of unity. This isn't some kind of like, you know, again, soft unity. This is specific biblical spiritual unity. So we're called to keep a specific type of unity. Spiritual, biblical, gospel-centered unity, the kind of unity purchased by the Son when he reconciled us to God and to each other. So we're not calling for some kind of like, oh, you're right, you're right, we're all right, let's just get along. That's not unity, that's blindness. But true spiritual, biblical unity says there is a Savior, his name is Jesus. He died on the cross to reconcile people to himself and to each other. And if we stand on that truth, we can now relate to each other within this family in this way. You see, that's secure unity, relational sensitivity that enables us then to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. I hope the how and the why makes the what even more possible in your life. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.